Greetings. Uh, welcome to the NAI Global Podcast, How's Biz? I'm your host, Gary Marsh. Uh, today's guest is a little different. We normally have an NAI Global Professional from different markets, different expertise. But today we wanted to bring on Harry Moser. Harry's the founder and CEO of the Reshoring Initiative. Uh, it's one of the most topical things going on in America these days. Uh, we're, it's a fascinating subject, and we're, we're pleased and honored to have Harry on the program. Harry, welcome. It's great to be here, Gary. Appreciate it. Uh, Harry spends his time, uh, he's originally a Chicago, uh, if not native, professional, but he, he wisely splits his time between Maine in the summer and Florida in the winters. And we've got him from Maine today, avoiding a, a hurricane threat. Uh, so that's good. Um, we have lots to talk about, Harry. So I'm going to just jump in. First of all, most people, unless they've been really seeing all the media coverage, and you've had a, quite a bit on the Reshoring Initiative, uh, most people won't know what you do. And rather than read your bio, just give me a quick snippet of where you've been. I know you've been in the manufacturing business for 50, 55 years and more recently retired. And to do something productive, you started the Reshoring Initiative. So just tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so you're right with the 55 years. Uh, I, I, uh, I went to MIT, got uh, two engineering degrees, eventually went to University of Chicago, got an MBA, uh, started working in GE's manufacturing management program, being trained to like be a factory manager or something like that. Um, left that after a year and a half, went to MIT, worked in the industrial liaison office, exchanging technology with big companies all over the world. Great, great job. Very, turned me somewhat from an engineer into a salesman, and that was fun. Um, then worked for a, a series of uh, foundry equipment and machine tool companies. And then the, the, the best regular career that I had, I became the North American president of Charmi, which is now GF Machining Solutions. So it's EDM and high-speed milling machines. So it was a wonderful job. When I came on board, we were number seven in the industry in North America, and in eight years we were number one. And you know, it's the kind of thing you, that if I, I, I don't ever want to see my gravestone, but it's one of the things I'd put on it and say, I'm so proud that the team was able to do that. Well, that's certainly something to be proud of, and, and your your background clearly speaks to extensive expertise, uh, both from an educational perspective and a practical one, i.e. professional one, uh, for being in the manufacturing space and, and being in this reshoring initiative program, which you believe, I think you started around 2010, is that right? Yeah, 2010, because that's when I retired from, from the, the company, and, and uh, I, I was too young to, to do nothing and uh, had enough money, I could do whatever I wanted to do, so I didn't have to make any money, so I... I, and I said, what, what's the most important thing that needs to get done for the country? And I, I'd seen throughout my career, I'd seen company after company, industry after industry be destroyed by low priced imports before I'd get to sell them the foundry equipment and the machine tools. And, and I said, and I, I could just see it happening everywhere in the country and it decided that something had to be done about it. And that since nobody else was doing anything, I, I was the guy. So, so I did it. Well, as we say, right on, uh, that's, so you had a front row seat of the offshoring trend that started in the 80s, uh, just became pervasive. And now you've got the front row seat for the reshoring trend, which is a, a nice full circle, but we, we all have collectively more work to do. Um, one of the things that I saw in your bio that your, your early work on the reshoring initiative led you to a meeting with President Obama. Tell, tell us about that. That was a lot of fun. The, the... They, they contacted me about a week in advance, invited me down. Uh, I, obviously, I came. Uh, they, uh, uh, two, 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 two levels of security to go through to get into the White House. Um, it, it was an honor to be there. there. There were like 20 or 30 of us in the meeting. We, we each had thir uh, 90 seconds to make our pitch. And, uh, and that, that was good training because I, I, to work on it and work like the elevator pitch, so to speak. Thir 90 seconds, you get it, get it done. And, and I, I had a friend who knew him very well. And he, the friend said that Obama remembered me because I was the only one that actually did it in 90 seconds. Everybody else took two, three, four minutes kind of like, and, uh, and, and it was an honor to meet him. I met President, uh, Vice President Biden at the time. He was in, he was in the meeting also. And, uh, and then that afternoon there was a, a um, televised uh, 
panel discussion led by the head of the SBA, and and I gave her a couple of good ideas that she liked. So, so it was it was a, it was a, one of the top days of my career, I'd have to say. I would say, well, uh, engineers worldwide are, are applauding because they're saying engineers one, salesman zero, because <laughs> you, you could keep the timeline. So I love that part of the story. Um, since then, a lot has changed. Uh, we we you know came out of the great great financial crisis. Uh, was that a, a, a hindrance or an accelerant to the nature of your work? Uh, and that's question number one. Number two, who were some of your early um, adopters and advocates for what you're doing? Okay, so the the, the great financial crisis caused caused a lot of changes in the U.S. You might say, but but it, reshoring was not a high priority. And uh, there was some we had a nice connection with the White House and Obama. Um, but they didn't, they didn't do the core things that needed to get done. They, I have found that Obama, Trump, uh, Biden, all, all tend to apply um, sort of band-aids and tourniquets and the, uh, sort of uh, media opportunities of what they can do rather than attacking root cause, because root cause is tougher to work on. And, and so I'm but but overall, I've been happy with much of what Biden has done, and but it's not enough. It's nowhere near enough to get it to get it done. Well, you know, I'm going to jump jump ahead to something that wasn't uh, scripted or previously discussed, but I'm sure you'll be fine with it. Um, in our warm up conversation, the phrase industrial policy came up, and so now it's a it's like hitting your thumb every time there, I see even see something remotely referencing industrial policy. I think of our, our conversations. And one of the Wall Street Journal headlines from September 7th has uh, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary Gina Raimondo uh, with a headline saying Raimondo drives industrial policy. I, apparently she'd met with uh, her equivalents from Mexico. Um, but we're starting to see some evidence of it, of, of a industrial policy, which is has more permanence. It should be something I think we'd all agree would be a, a, ben a benefit to the US that would be above and beyond what the current administration is doing versus the next administration. So uh, can you comment on that, Harry, at all? Uh, I'd say we, we've had industrial actions uh, rather than policy. Policy is more organized, more thought out, should, should, should be more, more consistent, more dealing with root causes. And the and what they've done so far needed to be done, like the CHIPS Act needed to be done because we've allowed ourselves to fall so far behind and, and CHIPS are so important. But but when I I, I did a uh, present a testimony at the Senate on June 9th and, on this subject, and I said, if you only do the like the CHIPS, then we're going to have so, extreme amounts of CHIP capacity. But if we don't also bring back the assembly of the product that use the chips, then we're going to have to sell the chips to China to make the infotainment systems and the servers and the electronic medical devices to ship back to us. And they're not going to buy our chips because we're going to be fighting with them and we're not going to be able to get anything from there to here. So that's not going to work. So, so if we're going to, we're doing the chips, but now we should also have an industrial policy that makes a broad range of industrial, a broad range of products economically competitively produced here and and that requires a combination of pol real policies like skilled workforce massive change of resources from liberal arts university degrees to toolmaker welder precision machinist electronic technician uh, getting the dollar down it's by 30 percent from the uh, almost record levels that it's reached uh, not raising the corporate income tax and and keeping the uh, immediate expensing of capital investment. So a series of things like that that will that will uh, attack the root causes and make the U.S. competitive. That, that That's industrial policy. And it seems we have a long way to go. Uh, maybe that's something we can work on collectively to to change. I'm, I'm all in personally. Um, you, you referenced the CHIPS Act. Let's let's go swing to that. Uh, that seemed to be a good piece of legislation. I don't care which side of the aisle. Uh, you politically vote, um, but it seems a, a good place to start, I, I, I should say. But 
what other kind of actions could we take? I mean, that seems like it, it's not, a, is, can we call it a subsidy, government subsidy? Oh, it's, a, it's clearly a subsidy. They're going to spend, you know, $50 billion subsidizing the construction of the chip foundries so that which will which motivates the companies to have the foundries here and and some of them aren't even american uh, taiwan semiconductor uh, i think samsung maybe uh, coming over here and building chip foundries that they otherwise could have built in in uh, in south korea or other places around the world so this is clearly a subsidy the problem is every country is subsidizing their, their chips you know and therefore uh, that's going to make chips a very low-priced object because there's going to be so much capacity and, and so heavily subsidized. And, and our, it always turns out that our chips are more expensive to make. Well, that's, that's quite a swing from where we've been. Uh, historically, chips have been, you know, market-priced, I believe. You might know better than I. Yeah, market-priced, but with subsidies, every, every, some, some subsidies, especially in, I'd say in China and maybe South Korea, Japan, uh, U.S. typically not. Um, so it's, um, but, but there, there's so many, so many of these things being built around the, around the world that there's go going to be <clears throat> excess, significant excess capacity in three or four years when all of them are completed. And then the prices are going to collapse and then it's going to be a dogfight. Uh, well, I, we'll see how accurate your prediction is. We'll, we'll be around in three or four years. We'll circle back and do another podcast. Uh, but, you know, at the time being, it also seems a reaction to uh, uh, the supply chain disruption. The pandemic did not cause the supply chain disruption. That was already nearly broken before the pandemic. The pandemic, I think, was the straw that broke the camel's back. But uh, the world has recognized, certainly America, that chips are an essential ingredient to everything. I mean, the automotive industry in particular, um, we used to be able to rely on different partners and there's some geopolitics associated with this business these days, of course. So, you know, from a national security perspective, it seems like a good thing. And if prices go down, it's not a bad thing for consumers, but it's not necessarily healthy for an industry. Yeah. Can you imagine, can you imagine Intel if, if they dump 10 or 20 billion into these foundries, e even after the government subsidies, and then, and then they can't keep them busy? It's, it's, gonna, it's not going to be pretty. Anyway, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope I hope the, uh, the, the there's there's a the positive side is that there's going to be a substantial demand for uh, semi uh, semiconductors in in EVs, for example, and yeah. and, and if, if if that turns out to be enough, and if and if the EVs come on strongly enough, yeah, you know, maybe it'll absorb all the capacity. But I'll I'll, I'll be surprised. Well, let's uh, let's shift subjects related. Um, you recently attended the IMTS uh, convention. It's eighty-eight thousand people. It's a, a manufacturing show. I, you may have told me, but just to remind the audience what IMTS is an acronym for, and and speak to the level of enthusiasm you experienced at the show, uh, and uh, especially for the accelerated pace of manufacturing and reshoring in America. So. Talk to us about your experience at the IMTS show. Okay, so IMTS is the International Manufacturing Technology Show. It used to be the machine tool show, and and they broadened to include robots and all, all kinds of you know, tooling and software and things like that. So so it's the manufacturing technology show, but generally related to machining, to to making metal parts and cutting 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 them down like with milling or turning or building them up like with additive, which everybody hears about additive all the time. And the uh, they had finally a, about 89,000 attendees, which made it the largest trade show of any kind in America this year. Uh, they had, uh, I, don't know, I think, two, two, about something like 2 million square feet, uh, 1,200 exhibitors. It was, it, was, it was massive. Some of these booths were... 20,000 square feet or something like that. Just incredibly expensive things to do. Um, attendance, again, was quite good. Wasn't as good as the record in 2018, but because there weren't as many students because they couldn't get bus drivers and there weren't, were not as many Asian attendees because of COVID and restrictions and China and, you know, whatever. But but the, the exhibitors, that's what counts. You got to keep the exhibitors happy or they're not coming back in two years. And the quite consistently they said that the 
people that were there came with money, came with plans, came with objectives. Um, I sat in on a meeting with some some Lockheed engineers, and and they with with a a group that I'm part of, and the the three engineers said, "I've got problem A, problem B, and problem C." And the the my group said, "We've got solution A and solution B and solution C," and they're shaking hands and handing out cards, and you know it's just like you want business to be with with people finding solutions for other people's problems and everybody anticipating. Uh, positive economic outcomes from it. So it was it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, another inter- another interesting thing I think um, there was a section of it on there was a section on reshoring or onshoring. Uh, we had a symposium on that Friday morning. It was well attended. Got some good good coverage. We gave out the uh, fifth annual National Metalworking Reshoring Award to a company called Hardinge, which is in Elmira, New York, and is a, a it's been making machine tools in the U.S. since 1890, so it was very nice to have them win. And we had an a investor forum, so brought in um, uh, private equity, venture capital, Wall Street uh, to see what's happening in manufacturing and reshoring, and look for opportunities to invest. So, so it was a you know overall a lot of a lot of interesting things going on. Well, that sounds all really good. Um, what was the name of the company here? The Hardens? H-A-R-D-I-N-G-E, Hardinge Inc. Sounds fascinating. Uh, I'd like to follow up with them maybe and talk to them as well. Um, and Elmira, New York, I know where that is, but um, it sounds like a productive show. And, and if I read into what you're saying, it's every two years, is that correct? just the even year. So it was this year and it'll be again in 2024. In 2000, they did not have it because it was the sort of the peak of the of COVID and uh, Chicago said you can't do it. And so they didn't do it. <laughs> Got it. Um, the other thing you mentioned is uh, you recently had a lot of uh, extensive media coverage. Uh, NBC, CBS, Fox Business, CNBC, they've spoken with you. Um, historically, my, my take, I'm a former business journalist. So I'm little sensitive to it. Main, mainstream media doesn't typically cover a whole lot of business. There's some exception, of course. Uh, but it's interesting that um, a lot of these mainstream media does is beginning to pay attention to reshoring. Uh, give us a sense of what their questions were with you and what they want to talk about and sort of themes that came out of your conversations with the press. Yeah. In the, over the last 20 or 30 years, manufacturing is sort of ignored because people say, well, yeah, manufacturing's up or manufacturing's down, but it's only 10% of the economy, whereas 70% is consumer consumption. So it doesn't matter what happens to manufacturing. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you can, you can hear that on the, on the news media, especially the business news. And, and now they're starting, they've started to see what the impacts are when you can't get products. And, and the impacts on company A when you can't get the products that it needs to make things for company B because of disruptions, because of uh, you know, supply chain issues, COVID, et cetera. And, uh, and so the, the, the media has understood that, that the country uh, cannot survive without a strong manufacturing sector and, and, and preferably a stronger one than we have. The, the, everybody understands we need to be more resilient, more self-sufficient, and that means we have to produce more and, and we have to get manufacturing from being maybe 10% of the economy to being 15% or, or even 20% like it is in Germany. So probably 15 would be a good goal. And, and so the, um, and, and, and I think business media uh, focuses on change. You know, we, we always hear about disruptors. Things. This company is disrupting that that industry kind of thing. Well, there's disruption going on in in the supply chain, which creates opportunities in manufacturing and opportunities for investment. So that's why, um, where, where thirty years ago, forty years ago, Wall Street basically told companies stick to your core competence, which is marketing and innovation and finance 
all that commodity manufacturing that's a commodity let the chinese or the mexicans or somebody do it for you and and don't you don't invest in that keep keep you know fewer assets higher return on assets etc cetera, etc cetera. but now they're starting to see that that was a failed policy has let, left the country and the companies vulnerable and that the right solution is to bring a, a significant portion of that back you mentioned that before, I believe, ironically, Wall Street led the exodus and they seem to be in the, in the front row of bringing it back to some degree. No question about it. We've got, uh, we've got one uh, major analytical firm on Wall Street that buys our data and then reanalyzes it and repackages it to send out. Uh, we did a um, Bank of America came out with some data, like a newsletters for their um the clients and you used a lot of our data and they gave me permission to mention it and uh, uh and, and like every week i get a different financial firm calling us and asking us uh, what do we know what can we tell them what 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 you know what what, what insights can we bring to them uh there's also the, the private equity firms that have um i some of them are starting to say well maybe can you help us identify the the companies to buy that will benefit the most from reshoring. And once we've bought them, help us guide them so that they optimize that result. And some of them even thinking about buying a, a company in a supply chain and, and ref, making, making the U.S. self-sufficient again in that product category, and then buying the company uh, uh, upstream from that that now has local supply and buying the company downstream that that's going to produce the raw materials to go into the first company. You know, so there's, there's, there's a lot of optimization that can go on there. And, and we're, we're happy to help them. Well, that sounds like capitalism 101 through capitalism 400 um, yeah. covered in that one. That's the way it is in America. That's good stuff. Um, well, let's talk about some of the results. That's, that's, that's interesting into itself, but um, I saw one of your reports, Harry, that uh, through the first six months of the year, uh, there were approximately 175,000 new reshore jobs, manufacturing jobs brought brought to the, the, the shores, I presume the lower 48 pr principally. Um, that means we're on track for about 350,000 jobs per year. Is that, if, if we do hit that number, would that be the biggest number since you've been tracking this data? Yeah, but by far, when we started in 2010, the total, and the total means the total of reshoring by U.S. headquartered companies and foreign direct investment, FDI, by foreign headquartered companies, the total in 2010 was 6,000 jobs. And last year, uh, 2021, 260,000. And this year, still looking at 340 to 350,000, somewhere, somewhere in, that, in that region. What was the number in 2021? Two six zero thousand. Okay, wow. Uh, this is good progress. Um, one of my thoughts were, I, as impressive as the numbers are, um, what would it take to get to a million uh, new jobs? Uh, and and I think you may want to talk about the educational challenge you alluded to early on, uh, whether we have the talented workforce or not. Yeah, a million at the, the total U.S. manufacturing employment is somewhere between 12 and 13 million, which and which is has gone up steadily for the last 12 years, almost historically long period of growth in the last 40, 50 years. So so it's done, done very nicely, but but it's still 12 million and 13 million. And we have about 800,000 job openings. And so if we brought back a million, the need for a million jobs, then we'd have 1.8 million job openings. So, so, so you can see we need to, if we started to bring back anything like a million a year, we'd have to be training a million a year. And, and at the moment, the number of, say, apprentices in the U.S. in manufacturing is, is in the thousands, a couple thousand, you know, 5,000 maybe, as opposed to hundreds of thousands like you'd find in Germany. So, um, so if we're, if we're going to get the number up from say the three hundred thousand, which is sort of just manageable, to the million, requires a, a, a major commitment by city, state, uh, federal government companies to to have apprenticeship programs, to have have uh, to encourage 
to show students that that a four-year degree is not the only way to win that a that a trained trade what we call a profession uh, in, in manufacturing tool maker welder precision machinist for example but but also plumber you know a carpenter electrician that that the incomes of people who, who are highly skilled in those areas with the overtime that they work is often higher than that for people with bachelor's degrees and and so yet the government does not do there, there's a uh, there's a chart i always look at on the department of labor that shows uh, it's headlined uh, education pays and talks about million dollars more lifetime income with a university degree than than high school and, and I'm, I'm trying to con convince them in that chart to put in the average income of people who passed an apprenticeship so the guidance counselors the students the parents the principal can say wow that's a good alternative. Hmm. No tuition. Start making money at eighteen. Uh, hands on. Get some practical skills you can use to fix your house or your car. Well, yeah, that this makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. And and so it's a it's going to require a societal shift to be in this sense more like Germany and less like England, for example. Well, we seem to be uh, beginning that process. Hopefully, uh, there's a collective that brings it to the attention of our, our, our leadership. Um, yeah, there's work to be done, but I, I like where you're going with it. Uh, Actually, just, just to uh, say, uh, I had a call uh, about two weeks ago from a, a senior aide to a California uh, uh, congressman, U.S. congressman, and uh, they had read one of my articles that, that espoused and advocated this position and they're, they're working with me. And when I collect enough data and, and write it up enough for them, the congressman's going to take it to the Department of Education and Labor and, and ask them to uh, uh, be more uh, supportive of, of training in the United States. Uh, I'm going to follow up with you on that offline. Since I live in California, I might be able to contact that congressperson's office and, uh, and double up to advocate for it. I, I have I have to do my job first to to give them the, the raw material. I'll let you go first, Harry. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Germany a couple times, and uh, again when we did a warm up to our call, um, we we discussed Germany, of course, being the number one manufactured exporting country in Europe. Uh, one of the challenges, of course, to reshoring is the cost of labor. We've talked about the increased number of robotics. Uh, I believe the data for uh, 2021 was the Association of Advanced Automation reported North American companies ordered almost 12,000 new robots. No, that's just in the first quarter of this year, worth 646 million. That's impressive, but robotics alone won't do it. We've got this high cost of labor. So Germany has high cost of labor. They've got a high cost of living. It's a modern economy. So does France. So does Italy. Um, how do they seem to be competing, whereas we may not be? The, the wages are roughly comparable if you, uh, you know, use a cur currency, you know, maybe the dollar's up so much now that our wages are 10% are high, higher or something like that. But the wages are pretty close. And yet Germany has a trade surplus of 5% of its GDP, and we have a trade deficit of 3%. So, so then you say, well, what's the reason? I and, and many other observers would say uh, workforce. That in Germany, 60, that's approximately 60% of the high school kids at the age of 16 or 17 go into four-year apprenticeships and come out extremely well-trained, trained by a master, trained trained so that at, at, at the age of 20, they're as good as, they're better, I'd say, than the average person in the same field, 40-year-old in the same field in the United States. So you get this exquisitely good training, and then they, they stay with it. They, they work their way up within the company. I've taken tours over, over to Switzerland to see the same kind of system. And in, in most of the mid-sized companies, the uh, apprentice works their way up, eventually gets maybe an engineering or a business degree and becomes the vice president, the president of the company, because they know the product, they know the process of making it, they know the employees, they know the customers, you know, they know everything as opposed to an MBA, you know, parachuted in that's supposed to turn, make the thing wonderful. And, and, and this works in Germany so well. And so both at that 
at that uh, apprentice training, but also you get a higher percentage of the university students studying engineering. So they have a better pool of engineers than we do. So, so you, you put all that together and, 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 and that makes them easier for them to take advantage of automation. So uh, I, I, one of the tours I took was to a major machine tool company in Switzerland. And they, told, they said, Harry, when, when we're, here's a complicated part. And when we're programming it for the US, we break it into two steps, put it on two different machines, because we know the US programmers and operators can't handle it. Whereas in, if we're doing it for Switzerland or Germany, we do it in one step with more complicated programming, but that cuts the handling, it cuts, it cuts the cycle time, improves the accuracy, you know, the whole thing turns out better. And so a combination of all, all kinds of small moves like that, that are enabled by that workforce is, is what creates that higher competitiveness for the German economy. And it's not just price, you know, it certainly helps on cost and price, but it helps on quality and delivery and innovation and design. Because if, if, you, if, you, if you know how to make something, it's easier to design it than if you only know how to design it, but you've never made it. So the, the whole package works, works over there. Now, th they're being challenged right now by natural gas. Sure. Russia's cutting them off. Or is, you know, the, the price is up by a factor of four or eight. It's you know, horribly higher than our, our natural gas. So you've got companies in, in uh, Western Europe, especially Germany, uh, that are concer concerned about where they're going to get their natural gas and what it's going to cost this winter. And they're looking at coming over to the U.S. and finding a place to produce their natural gas intense products like chemicals, uh, fertilizers, things like that, to produce those things in the United States for the North American market because they, they won't be competitive shipping them from Europe uh, given the current situation. Well, I've been wondering about that and we can certainly connect them to our friends in Louisiana and, and other parts of the, the, the gas belt where lots of LNG is produced in America and exported, as you know. It's interesting when you, when you speak about Germany here in America, we talk about words we use culture, community and environment um, to describe, you know, eco environments that that be, that speak to this 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 thing that Germany seems to have mastered around. It's just the way they do it. And it's it's an ecosystem that produces future generations of makers. Um, so something to be modeled uh, there. And so that's that's good commentary. Uh, I did want to shift to, um, you'd spoken about direct foreign investment before or foreign direct investment, FDI. Um, tell us more about that in detail so our audience understands it. Some of our industrial practitioners will know what it means, but but some of us won't. So maybe just explain that a bit. So again, we, we differentiate between reshoring. So General Motors could reshore. If they, if they <clears throat> start making a transmission here or a or a, a, a disc brake or something that they previously had imported, they start making it here or sourcing it here, either way, uh, that's been reshored. If the same process is undertaken by a foreign headquartered company, think Toyota, Siemens, ABB, somebody like that, uh, a big, uh, big chemical company, all of a sudden they invest here, they hire here, well, that's foreign direct investment. And direct, I think, implies I've built, I brought money over and I've built a new asset and hired new people as opposed to mergers and acquisitions. So it, when we track it, we only track um, incremental facilities, incremental investment, incremental workforce, because that's, that's what we care about is, is adding that capacity and equipment and people into the United States. Got it. So... For example, I, we recently produced a piece for NAI Global's Industrial Logistics Group, um, and one of the commentaries was there's multiple mega sites, development sites here in the United States happening, um, one of which is not far from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I believe there's a, a big uh, Toyota EV plant going in on about a thousand acres, don't quote me, but something like that. That sounds like it's more foreign direct investment than a reshoring initiative. That, that's foreign direct investment totally and, and the there's been huge investment in batteries the the uh, uh, two weeks ago i was interviewed by cnbc while, while i was at the imts and 
So I was interviewed there by Phil LeBeau from from CNBC, and it was it was about uh, about batteries, about the uh, huge investment going on in the U.S. in battery EV battery facilities, which tends to be focused on the South and on the industrial heartland in the Midwest. Number one, South. Number two, industrial heartland. Some on the West Coast, almost nothing in the Northeast. But why is that? I've been wondering about the geo, 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 geography of that. I saw the um, mayor of Columbus, Ohio, was on Bloomberg News yesterday talking about the new Intel facility. Why is why is the why is the Midwest and not necessarily the old Rust Belt, but sort of the Rust Belt slash South such popular attractions? Do they have better workforces? Or I know they've got more open arms from a we're we're ready for business. We're open for business. But what do you think it is, Harry? Yeah, uh, number one, I, be I believe for the South is uh, right to work, the ability to uh, uh, have, a, have a facility and be less likely to have a unionization take place. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what's attracted the uh, foreign, the FDI of vehicle assembly. Almost all of that has gone into the South. Uh, some some down to Mexico, but it's even further south. But but basically into the south, and, and then since uh, Toyota or Honda, whomever puts a has a facility there, and since in the next three or four or five years they're going to convert that significantly to EVs, they're going to need hundreds of thousands or millions of cars worth of EV batteries, which means you have to keep building these EV battery uh, plants near them. So. So the, the South uh, is, is a good place to make the batteries, and, and it already had proven to be a good place to make the, e, the cars, which will be EVs, which need to have batteries produced near them because you don't want to have train loads of batteries shipping across the country to get to the assembly plant. And, uh, and so that, that's why the South has been so popular. The, the Midwest has attracted uh, the EV batteries because in the same sense, the the current auto assembly plants that have the internal combustion engines are going to be converting over the next five, 10 years to, to EV. And they won't need engines, internal combustion engines, but they're going to need millions of batteries. So they put the battery plants right next to those, those committed auto assembly plants. That makes perfect sense. Well, and I think maybe the uh, Inflation Reduction Act has some incentives for industry to do to produce batteries here as well. I, I currently I think it's a $7,500 um, stipulation buyers get of, of a, a, some sort of federal d discount if the battery's made here in America. So yeah, it's, it's uh, 3750 if the EV is made in North America and an additional 3750 totaling your 7500 if uh, if the battery is also made in North America and primarily from North American uh, raw materials, so you can't, you can't cannot bring in lithium and you know all the other materials needed from China specifically. Uh, you need you need to be sourcing it. I, I think within North America there might there might be some other allies kind of words in it, but basically the intent is to have the the whole supply chain here. Which makes a lot of sense. So we, you know, the U.S. as you know, as we were talking about industrial policy before, and I'd say the U.S. has had a deindustrial policy, and that while all the other countries tended to do things like that, intended to to subsidize and support and enable and train their manufacturing workforce, we we ignored it. We said that that's okay. You, we'll, we can all become, um, you know, finance and software and stuff like that. And now the U.S. is starting to see it has to it has to restore much of that capability and uh, and it's, it's finally doing so. Well, well, number one, thank you for the clarification on the uh, consumer uh, uh, benefit for buying an electric car and the battery too, and how that that uh, refund is is uh, structurally organized. The other thing you you mentioned it's it's a kind of a different topic, but somehow the uh, idea of of the U.S. taking our eye off the, the ball of manufacturing for so many years, and now realizing that we need to bring some of it back—it's—it's it's a little bit like it was a good party. Now there's a bit of a hangover. 
<laughs> I think we're going to have a better party in the future. I mean, the U.S. has done amazingly well because of being so big. So much, you know, agriculture is strong. A lot of natural resources. Oil now, we're, I think, a net exporter again. Natural gas, huge exporter, LNG. So we've got, we've got a lot of things going. Over the years, we had a lot of good immigrants who came in and brought skills and innovation and, and commitment. And then I think the last 20 years, we've gotten 20, 30 years, gotten sort of sloppy and, uh, and not been as aggressive as we should have been, not, not as, as a country and, and, and as companies and, and workers. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I, I see that coming back. It has to come back for us. If, if we're going to stay the arsenal of democracy and the leader of the free world, then, then we have to be the, uh, we, ha we have to produce. Uh, we can't be dependent on the rest of the world for, for, for what we consume and, and what we use for the military. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that things are, are working in the right direction. Well, that, that's, that's a place where we could almost end, but it's too good to, to, to not stop. Because um, one of the things I did want to ask you about, um, some of our colleagues have used the word deglobalization to talk about the restructuring of the supply chain. I think you use the word localization. Um, tell me where you're coming from, from that perspective. What do you see happening with global supply chains? And, and again, back here with the subject that's nearest and dear to your heart, i.e. reshoring, uh, where, where do you see this all kind of headed in the next five years? So, so we see multinational corporations, which is the ones who've done globalization, we, we see them continuing to operate around the world. General Motors has been very successful building cars in China, uh, see, uh, Toyota in the US, Mercedes in the US. And, and so we, can, we believe that will continue or even grow. So companies will still operate around the world, but they'll tend to uh, produce in a country or a region for the country or region, rather than producing everything in one location and shipping it uh, all, all over the world. So there was a, I heard a, a vice president of Stanley Black and Decker speak, and he said, uh, we assemble where we sell and we source components where we assemble. So each in each major section of the world, they have assembly plants and they source the components there, they assemble there, and, and most of what they produce there, they ship in, into that market rather than shipping it to, you know, all over the world. And so if you, and, and if you think about it, you know, I, I, I'm fairly knowledgeable on lean. And if, and if you think about it, there's, it's very unlean, very inefficient to produce stuff in one location and ship it all over the world when you can just, you can at least as efficiently produce it at many locations, you know, three, four, Germany, US, China, what have you, and, and, and eliminate all that shipping, all that storage, all, all that screwing around. And, and that's, a, that's a much more logical way for things to happen. So, so still globalization, but local globalization, uh, multinationals operating everywhere in the world, but operating locally, taking care of their local customers. That all makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a minor exception or I, I want you to comment on it. For example, uh, one of our most active uh, operations is, is the group out of Mexico, NAI Mexico. Um, they have 10 or 11 offices. They're very uh, active in the industrial real estate sector down there. They, they actually work throughout other NAI offices uh, throughout the Southern Americas. Um, but the Macleodora system that's been in place for years, um, stuff made in Juarez, shipped across to El Paso, vice versa. That seems to have been pretty efficient, pretty effective and lean. Um, has anything changed there? I'd like to hear your comment on that. Well, certainly the, the USMCA, I'd say, made it even, even more effective because of the uh, increase to, what, 75% or something on North American content to avoid the, the, the duty. Um, but, but if you think about it, Juarez going across the border is no different from, you know, going across the border from uh, Illinois into uh, uh, Iowa or, or Missouri or, you know, or somewhere. And, and so, the, uh, so, so it, it, that says do it locally, 
Whereas if they're pulling it out of southern Mexico and shipping it all the way to Maine, well, then that would be inconsistent with my viewpoint. So I think your your example is is very consistent. It says it says blur blur the national border and apply localization, and 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 that's fine. And and actually, yeah, I was about eight years ago. I spoke at a uh, at a conference in Monterey. It was put on by a, a magazine that, that deals with industrial parks in in Mexico. A good, good group, nice people. And everybody else got up and said, let's sell more to the U.S., let's sell more to the U.S. The people up there don't want to work hard. Our people want to work. We'll, we'll just sell them hundreds of billions more stuff. And I said, well, why don't you, here's a different viewpoint. Why don't you, instead of just continuing to dump into the U.S., look at your trade balance. And you at, that, at, at this time, I think they have a $90 billion per year trade surplus with the U.S. and a 120 billion trade deficit with China. So instead of increasing your surplus with the U.S., why don't you reduce your deficit with China? Why don't you make more of what of the things you produce, you source from China? Your wages are lower. You can get all the technology and the support and capital you need from the U.S. So, so, so we, we recommend U.S., Canada, and Mexico working together as a team to pull back millions of jobs and put the more labor intense into Mexico and the more, let's say, skill or technology intense into the U.S. and Canada and, and bring, you know, a couple, three, four million jobs to Mexico, maybe a million to the U.S., half a million or quarter million to Canada. <clears throat> I think the North America would be a much happier place if we did that. Well, and you commented, did you say the USMCA, is, which is the new NAFTA, of course, uh, has it, it gained efficiency by 75 percent because of that? No, not, not gained efficiency. Um, the, the rule used to be, I think, that for a product to cross the border, uh, it had to have 62.5 or 65% North American content to cross the border without a tariff, without duty. And, and that level was raised to 75%, which has uh, caused some companies to produce in one, one or more of the three countries products that they would have otherwise brought in from China or India or who knows where else. So it's, so it's, made, it's made operating uh, in North America more profitable for the companies and therefore they do more of it. That's a, another good clarification and obviously speaks to uh, in another incentive. So good stuff, Harry. The, and you mentioned, thank you for the cross-border reference of Juarez, El Paso. It's, it's not unlike for most people that aren't aware of it, Detroit, big manufacturing uh, community. Um, a lot of, there's a lot of trade between Southern Ottawa. Goes back and forth across a bridge, name the bridge. I don't know the name of the bridge, but. Um, it goes across to Windsor. Windsor, right. So uh, we did a podcast with a fellow based in Ottawa. He mentioned the automotive trade in that part of Canada as being one of their biggest industries. So, um, yep. well, well, before we wrap up, uh, we do want to talk let, about. Let me want ask just mention another another thing. Okay. Maybe, maybe you're going to bring it up, but but it, uh, companies that hear this and say, "Yeah, we're 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 concerned about uh, uh, disruption. We're concerned what's going to happen with China. Are we going to be able to keep getting things out of China and Taiwan? Uh, we, we're interested in reshoring. Well, we offer the. Uh, TCO, Total Cost of Ownership Estimator, which is an online tool to help them do the math. And, and, and when they do that, they'll typically find that 20 or 30 percent of what they're importing, they'd be more profitable if they made it or sourced it here. So we offer that. And then we offer tools to help companies identify importers that they can sell more of what they make to. So we've got, you know, both the tool, the, the sales tool, the sourcing decision tool and some you might say lead generation kind of thing so so if if any of the any big people who are listening and think that would help them then uh you know call, call harry is it something that you subscribe to or is it a paid service or how does that work the the tco estimator is is free online on our website uh the uh, the other programs like identifying um prospective customers is, is a paid service that we call it the import substitution service. Okay, that's a good one. Um, let me make a note, import substitute. Uh, 
All right, good. Well, the one thing, and that's that was something I wanted to bring up, you know, what kind of tools you might offer. But the other thing I was curious about here, and we can kind of finish with this, is the economic impact. Um, say there are 350,000 new manufacturing jobs in the US th this year. How does that impact local, regional, state economies? Yeah, and federal, I'd say. Federal. Uh, for first, manufacturing jobs tend to be the uh, so, somewhat higher paid on average than non-manufacturing jobs, especially total compensation certainly higher. And and the multiplier effect for manufacturing depends on what you're making, but somewhere between two and seven, whereas the multiplier effect for, uh, say, retail is 1.4 or something like that. So, so for every, every worker you can get shifting from almost anything else to manufacturing, that's going to create, that's going to, you know, pl plant seeds and have create more jobs in, in the community, in the state, in the country. So, so the economy grows uh, by, by most of the manufacturing workforce is, is upper middle class, middle class, and, and therefore you, you tend to stabilize the, the culture, the society by by having less income inequality because you've, you've restored some of your middle class. Uh, the, uh, all those people in the companies they work for pay more taxes when they manufacture more, and therefore the budget deficits go down because we're, we're looking at, at the federal level at trillion dollar budget deficits going on forever uh, otherwise. Um, and, and eventually the, the, the world, the, the U.S. Has, is said to have a, the the privileged position of having the the reserve currency and because everybody else wants to store their money here but eventually we're going to lose that position because our budget deficits and our trade deficits are so big and and so by reshoring we we prevent that an, an eventual collapse of that condition well there's a lot to it we could probably talk forever it seems like a uh, fascinating subject you're a great guest harry uh we do have to wrap it's been almost an hour which uh, this is our longest podcast to date, but uh, again, fascinating subject. I can't thank you enough. Listeners, if you want to find uh, uh, Harry and learn more about his organization, his website is www.reshorenow.org. And if you wish to call him, um, I'm Harry, I'm not sure if I want to give out your mobile number. So why don't you provide the best number you'd like to be reached by? So that was www.reshorenow.org. Oh, thank you, of course. And the, the mobile is 847-867-1144. And the email is harry.moser at reshorenow.org. And Moser is M-O-S-E-R. M-O-S-E-R, yep, you got Harry, it. Harry, thanks so much for being a guest on the How's Biz podcast. Can't thank you enough. Hope to speak with you again sometime. It was a pleasure. I'll come back anytime you need me. Thank you.